But today we turn back now to the book of Haggai. So uh, begin the process, find that. You can see the page number there if you're using the little Bibles that we provide um, here. What I want to remind you of, since it has been a couple of weeks, this is our third study in the book. Uh, and so I just want to remind you of a few things, three things in particular. Number one, remember context. This is a post-exilic book. It took place after the Jewish exile, when the people had been taken out of the land, particularly out of the land of Jerusalem and the surrounding areas, and brought to a foreign land, at that time, Babylon. There they remained for 70 years, and when uh, Babylon was defeated, the new conquering king gave the Jewish people permission that they could begin to make their way back to Jerusalem if they so desired. So that's what makes us a post-exilic book. The second thing that we learned about the book of Haggai when we began a few weeks back is that this book was primarily written to the leaders of the Jewish people there in Jerusalem. Certainly the message applied uh, to uh, the remnant of the people, but it was primarily written to the leaders. As we saw in Haggai chapter 1, verse 1, it was written to Zerubbabel, who was the political leader, and it was written to Joshua, who was the spiritual leader. And then finally, the third thing that we discovered in some of our earlier studies is that the reason why God moved upon the heart of this prophet Haggai uh, to go and to address the people, to speak to the people, is because uh, the people had gotten off track. Both the leaders and the people in general, they had kind of drifted from where they had once been, not necessarily into sin. Very important that we understand that about this book. They didn't drift off into sin. They just, I, I guess we'll say, they drifted off into distractions, which I think is such a temptation for us, isn't it? Especially, we live in a pretty good world overall. Some of you doubt that. You know, you, you watch the news a lot. Stop. All righty. But overall, it's a relatively comfortable place, and we can get comfortable here. And because of that, we can get distracted. Remember this about the people that uh, went back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, uh, among other things, but to rebuild the temple. Remember this about those individuals. These were sort of the cream of the crop of the Jewish people. The entire nation was, that was in exile was given the opportunity. There's differing estimates, but the one estimate that comes up again and again is that there was about a million people that were in exile, that were given the opportunity to go back to Jerusalem. And we learned from our study of the book of Ezra that only 50,000 of them actually went back to Jerusalem. Only 50,000 of them said, you mean I get to go back to the land that God gave to our parents and gave to our grandparents and to our forefathers? Or I can stay here in prison, essentially, in exile, uh, a captive in a foreign land? And only 50,000 decided to go back. That's a very small minority of the people. Over 90% of the people, the overwhelming majority of the people, determined that they would remain in bondage in a foreign land. And so the people that we are referring to in this book are those that had once been on fire for the Lord. Those that were willing to go anywhere that God might lead to, just so that they might be used to accomplish the purposes of God. And even in those individuals, there was a dulling that took place. There was a waning of the fervor that took place in their lives. And this particular book is designed to speak into the life of those individuals, to speak into those once on, fi on fire followers 
of God that followed God's lead wherever he might take them, but for whatever reason paused in the work of God, and the pause went so long that it it really resembled a stop in the work of God. That's who this book is directed to. That's kind of what we've learned already. Now, today we're going to pick up in chapter 2. So if you would turn your attention there, uh, as we turn there. uh, No, I'm sorry, not yet. Hang on there. Before we turn it, look at verse 2 of chapter 1. There it says this, Thus says the Lord, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Look at verse 4 of chapter 1. He says, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses while the house lies in ruin? So again, it wasn't time to, do, uh, to build the house of the Lord, but it was time to build their own houses. And not just one house, many houses. And not just many houses, many paneled houses. A lot of wealth uh, they were enjoying and living in luxury. And so again, we have a book not about sin, but about focus. Now, we get a sense of how the people respond to Haggai's call. So if Haggai challenged you, or um, someone like myself challenged you with where you are and your focus, and you know, it seems you've been distracted, and it seems you've gone in a di- different direction, how would you respond to that? Don't tell me. I don't need to hear that from you. You know what? You don't know the type of the things that I've accomplished, or, or whatever it might be. That would be a very negative response. A positive response that reveals a good place where these folks' heart is at is that they immediately begin to get to the work. And so it's as if they say, you know, Haggai, you're right. And so he challenged the people on the things they allowed themselves to be focused on. He challenged them, remember that phrase, to consider their ways. Remember that phrase meant um, like the path that you were on. He challenged them or he urged them to consider whether the end of that path Is that really where you want to be when you're done your journey? Is that where you want to go? Think about where you're going, he says to them. And as he presented this entire message to them, praise the Lord, the people responded. They said, you know what? You've cut us to the heart, and we want to get back on track. And so uh, as we read in verse 12, look, it says of chapter 1, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, With all the remnant of the people, they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. You look at verse 14, a little further down. It says, The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel the governor and the spirit of Joshua the high priest and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts their God. The same thing that brought them back to Jerusalem, God is doing again. He's stirring that work in them, and the people immediately respond to that stirring. They don't put it off until tomorrow. They don't put it off till next week. Monday morning, I'm really going to get going. They don't put it off to January 1st. You know what? My New Year's resolution this year is I'm going to get it going. They don't put it off. They don't put it off until a different stage in life. You know, when the kids grow and there's a little more peace in the house, then I'm going to get serious about these things. Or, you know, when I get married, right now, you know, I'm kind of young and I want to go all over and do all kinds of things. But when I get married, then I'm going to get serious about these things. When I retire, when I finally am, the the grind is done and I'm retired and I have all that time on my hands, 
Then I'm going to get serious about these things. They don't put it off. They respond immediately and they obey immediately. God stirred and they responded obediently and quickly. Because the reality is, if you ignore his stirring, sooner or later, it's likely going to fade. You experienced that? Class? Yeah. If you ignore it long enough and you get busy with other things and you watch enough TV shows, sooner enough, soon enough, it's going to fade away and you're going to be right back where you were, wasting weeks and wasting months and wasting years, even as this, even as this remnant of Israel did. And so as we come to chapter 2, look at verse 1. This time I mean it. Verse 1, it says, Now in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Scan back for a moment to the last verse of chapter 1. There we're given a different time marker, a different date. There it says, Now on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king, the people came and they worked on the house of the Lord. And so as chapter 2 begins, we are in the 21st day of the seventh month. As chapter 1 ended, we were in the 24th day of the sixth month. And so what we are is we're a little over three weeks later. A little over three weeks later, a second word comes to the prophet Haggai from the Lord. And beginning in verse 2, we have it. It says this, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, the governor of Judah. And speak now to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And speak now to all the remnant of the people. And say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land declares the Lord, work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when I came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst, fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, the second word here of the Lord from Haggai is not so much a word of challenge. It's not a word of rebuke. The first one was more of a word of challenge or rebuke. You know, you're living in your paneled houses. You're saying there's no time to build the house of the Lord, but yet you have plenty of time to do these other things. You've become distracted. Consider your ways. Get yourself back on track. That's a word of challenge. This one here is not so much a word of challenge. It's a word of encouragement. And we see in verse 1, it talks about it being occurring in the seventh month. Now, the seventh month of the Jewish calendar was the month that contained two significant feasts or Jewish holidays that uh, all the Jews within somewhat proximity to the area of Jerusalem or uh, in, of Israel were expected to come. And so in the seventh month, two significant feasts. The first is the Day of Atonement. In our day, we know it in our culture as Yom Kippur. They just celebrated it not too long ago. 
That's the first feast that takes place in the seventh month of the Jewish calendar. The second one is the Feast of Tabernacles. And so both of those two feasts, all observant Jews were expected to attend, the men in particular, and then typically their entire family came with them. And so what that means is that a lot of Jews that did not live in the immediate proximity of the temple that these guys are working on rebuilding, they were going to come to Jerusalem and see the progress that the people were making. But in only three weeks, being only three weeks in, it probably wasn't going to be a whole lot of progress, right? Would we all agree with that assumption? And so one can imagine that the lack of progress would be a bit discouraging for all involved, especially Zerubbabel, the governor, and Joshua, the high priest, the political and the religious leader of the people. And so as I read between the lines a bit in these opening verses, it seems that Haggai in this prophecy is, and God also told him, that he's anticipating a bit of the discouragement that Zerubbabel and Joshua and the, the people that were working on building the temple were feeling at the prospect of all these pilgrims coming in and seeing the state of things. And so again, here's the context. The people were stirred. They responded to that stirring. They got to work. But the results weren't as quick and they weren't as dramatic as you can imagine, as they might have hoped. Have you ever been in that place? You've gotten serious about something? Let's just take a kind of a secular example. You've gotten serious about losing some weight. Amen, anyone? You're determined you're going to drop 10, 20 pounds. Let's be honest, some of us here, 30, 40 pounds. You've gotten serious about it. And so you're cutting this and you're exercising that and you're watching everything you're eating and all of that stuff and you get on the scale and you lost one pound. You're thinking it stinks. Why bother? Anybody been there? Yeah, I've been there many times. I'll tell you that. <laughs> Amen. But you say, you know, why bother? Or perhaps a little more seriously, you've determined to work maybe on your marriage. And you and your spouse have really committed yourself to it. But you're not really seeing any progress. Or maybe your prayer life. And you know, you've realized over all these years that you've been in the Lord, you really don't have an intimate time of prayer with God on a regular basis. And you've determined to work on that. Or your devotional habits. Or the ministry that you are involved in. Or the church that you're trying to to build all these things, you've really determined, you're given yourself to it, you're devoted to that particular thing, and as you kind of pull back and you look, you see nothing's happening. And those results can oftentimes be discouraging, and those results can oftentimes bring you to a place where you say things like, you know, why bother? Or maybe, you know, maybe I should just give up. And that's where these guys are here in the book of Haggai. That's what Haggai senses. That's what God is laying in the heart of Haggai. The people had been working for a little over three weeks, and discouragement is beginning to set in. They were fired up. This time I'm losing the weight. And yet, same thing as always. And so they were fired up to do what it was that God was putting in their hearts to do on day one. But day 21, I don't know. This isn't as fun as it used to be. Or I don't really see what God is doing here. You know what? Is it even worth us trying to do these things? And that's what Haggai speaks into. And so maybe you're in that place in your life. 
or you've been in that place in your life, or you anticipate someday you might. This message is for you. He says this. He says in verse 3, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? Now remember, they were out of the land for 70 years. And so potentially there's some folks that are 80, 85 years old that are there that have kind of come to the area for the feast. They probably aren't working on the temple, I imagine, at 85 years old. But they've come to this area and they're looking at it, you know, and they were excited to get in Jerusalem. They heard, they're, you know, they're rebuilding the temple, man. Oh, that's so awesome. I can't wait to get there. And they turn that corner and they see what the people have been working on. You know, and the smile sort of fades. And Haggai can see the disappointment. And he says, who was left among you who saw this house in its former glory? He says, how do you see it now? And then he answers really his own question with the next question. He says, is it not as nothing in your eyes? Now, Ezra chapter 3, again, a very important book to read in conjunction with our study of Haggai and next week's, next time we get to it, our study of the book of Zechariah. Ezra chapter 3 tells us how the, the older people responded when they saw that temple compared to the one they remembered from when they were a little kid. Ezra 3 points out that those that were standing there gathered at the temple, that the old men who had seen the first house, that they wept with a loud voice. Not tears of, this is amazing. They wept. This stinks. This doesn't compare to what it was like once before. Even with the rebuilding efforts, it was just nowhere near what it once did. And so as they compared the present with the past, what they immediately concluded is just how far short they were falling of the past, if you will, in comparison. And again, I, I I wonder with that, have you ever done that? I think there's such a temptation that we can easily allow ourselves to fall into is to compare to sort of the glory days of before. And so perhaps we compare what God is doing at this time and in this place with, say, the first or second great awakening, which also took place in this place. And we read our history books and we see what God did through a Jonathan Edwards or a George Whitfield or a Charles Finney and these great revivals where thousands of people in our community, right around this area, that walk the same woods that are around here, and we think, God, why won't you do something like that today? It was glorious then, but today, Lord, why not today? And we compare with the past and we get discouraged. Or we, we read about the Jesus movement, which is kind of what started the Calvary chapels. And we read about that Jesus movement. We remember back to those days and, oh, it was just the best and all these kinds of things. And we compare it to today and we conclude, you know what, we just fall so miserably short of the glory of those particular days. Or maybe on more of a personal level, you read a biography of some great Christian missionary that has gone before us. Or you read some newsletter of a Christian missionary that's doing the work on this particular day, and then you look at your own life, and you compare, and you think, man, I'm a louse. I don't measure up to that at all, and I could never measure up to something like that. Or again, maybe you think back to a time in your own walk with Jesus when you were in a far different place from where you are today, And you become discouraged and perhaps conclude, you know, I'll never get back to that place I once was. I I think it's really easy for us to sink into a mood 
like these people here in the book of Haggai did, Haggai did if we're not very careful. But the reality is this. It's not really about where others have been in the distant past or what we or others have accomplished in the distant past. It's about where we are in the present. And are you a step ahead of where you were yesterday? That's really what matters. Don't look back 10, 15 years ago to that once wonderful place you were. Look back to where you were yesterday. Are you a little further along than where you were then? That's the first lesson. I think there's a couple of lessons here for any of us that might struggle a bit with doubt or disappointment or discouragement. Here's a couple of lessons. Number one, notice this. The Lord knows how these servants feel. He knows what's going on in their hearts. And he raises up a prophet. That's why he sends the prophet Haggai to them with a word of encouragement. I appreciate that. Sometimes I think I can put on a good face and fool you folks. And I think I, thus I can probably fool the Lord as well. But the Lord knows. And he knows the condition of their hearts. And he always knows the condition of our hearts. And so one of the most important things that we can practice in our relationship with God is have an open heart with him. Be very open. Be very honest. Let him know what's going on in there. He knows anyway. You need to get it out, and you need to talk with him about that. That's the first thing he knows. The second that we find here is that the necessary course of action for these guys, look at Haggai's instructions to them, the Lord's instructions through Haggai to them. The necessary course of action is to not wallow in what is not, but instead to begin to devote themselves to what will be. It's really important. So he says, you know, look at this place. It stinks, doesn't it? Yep. How many of you agree it stinks? Yep, we all agree that it stinks. His next instruction to them is work. Start rebuilding. Because what they want to say is, why bother working? And he says, no, no, you need to get to work. Because the glory of the latter place is going to be so much greater than the glory of the former. And so the necessary course of action is not to wallow in what was but instead devote themselves to what will be. And so we see in verse 4, once more, he says, Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord, according to the covenant that I made when you, with your like relatives, your ancestors. When you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Sitting there and thinking about how dismal the present circumstances are, are never going to change those circumstances, right? That's not profound, everyone. All right, you're just sitting there thinking it stinks. It's not going to change how much it stinks. Doing that, they're just going to be in the exact same place they were five weeks from now, five months from now, five years from now. What they need to do is what we see right there in the middle of verse 4, and it's simply the word work, he says. Haggai exhorts both the leadership, Zerubbabel and Joshua, and the people that they are to be strong and they are to work. Because the discouragement could have the effect, the effort of causing them to collapse. I saw a, a video, you know when you Facebook scrolling and you end up with those little video clips and you have to watch everyone for three hours? Um, I do. And there was one, and it was this, I guess he was in like the Olympics or something, and he was going to lift this big heavy weight, you know, like, like that kind of thing. And he was doing great. And all of a sudden, his knee went that way. I, yeah, 
I know, it was the free, and I, ah! I that's what I said as I was watching it, because the leg just collapsed from the weight. I think sometimes in our lives, discouragement can be like that. There's a lot of things that can be like that, but discouragement can have that effect where it just weighs on you and weighs on you and weighs on you until it feels as if your legs are simply going to collapse from under you and you're going to go crashing down. Feeble knees that are about to give way. What Haggai says to them is this, don't let that happen. Strange instructions, right? Like if it's weight, you're like, don't let it happen. Well, here's an idea. Don't lift up a heavy weight or whatever. But that's not how it works with discouragement. The discouragement is on us. The weight is on us. But he says, don't let it cause you to collapse in so many words. Don't let it cause you to do so. He says, instead, be strong. Now, I'm reminded as I hear that of another Joshua and how many times he was told that he needed to be strong and he needed to be of good courage. That's the Joshua that led the children of Israel into the promised land. That's the Joshua that was the assistant of Moses. Moses is about to pass off the scene. God has hand-selected Joshua. He's going to be the man, that, or the man that's going to lead them, the entire nation. At that time, they think four million people lead them into the land of promise, the land that had been promised 500 years earlier to Abraham. Joshua, me? I was an assistant. I wasn't like the associate Moses. I was more of like, here's your coffee Moses kind of guy. And now you're going to raise me up to lead these people into this land? And again and again and again in the book of Joshua, he is told to be strong and be of good courage. You're going to lead this nation into the land. You're going to be the immediate successor to Moses, charged with ridding the land of these foreign people that the children of Israel might inhabit it. And Joshua rightly feared that task. I'm glad in a sense that he does. If Joshua was like, finally, it's my chance, I'd be more concerned. But Joshua rightly feared the task that was before him. He doubted his ability to be up to that task. And in a word, we might say, Joshua was discouraged. And so God's admonition to him then is this, be strong and of good courage but continue to read the passage or, or consider it as I'm drawing your attention to it, God then tells him why. And so it's not like, Joshua, just buck up. That doesn't help or whatever. But he, So he goes on and he explains to him, Joshua, be strong and of good courage because, he says, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. That's why he could be strong and of good courage, because the Lord his God was with him wherever he went. He wasn't exhorted just to muster up courage out of nowhere. He was to be strong and of good courage because he had a reason to be strong and of good courage, because God was with him. Now we go back to our study of the book of Haggai. Notice Haggai exhorts the people. He says, be strong and work. And then he explains to them why, as it goes on there in verse 4, he says, for I am with you declares the Lord of hosts. In verse 5, he says, for my spirit remains in your midst. That's why they could be strong and encouraged. That's why they could do a work that they felt was useless. They can complete that work. And so in the same way that God was with the children of Israel, as they were about to enter the promised land, so too he's with this generation of believers in the book of Haggai. 
And the same God that did great and seemingly impossible things among them in the past would be among them to do those same things in the present. And because all of us in this room, we know that our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, we know that he will be with each and among each one of us in our present circumstances that we face. Do you agree with that? Do you understand that? Are you with me on that? He's the same God that was in Egypt and brought them out. He's the same God that brought them into the promised land. He was the same God that was with these people as they worked on this temple. He's the same God in our day as well. And if God is with us and God is for us, as Paul said, if God be for us, who can be against us? And so, again, no wonder they had reason that they could be strong and of good courage. It's the presence of God that makes his people strong, and it's the strength uh, of God in the strength that we are able to find courage. So God says here to them in so many words, you do your part, and I'll do my part. You take courage, stop being discouraged, or at least don't let that discouragement hinder you, and you do the work, and then I'll do what I do which he begins to talk about in verse 6. He says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. He says in verse 7, I will shake all the nations so that the treasure of all the nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. And then he says in verse 9, The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord. And so the reality is what they were working on may not look like much now. And they probably didn't have much of a budget. And how are we going to pay for the things that we're going to need to build this particular thing? It, it, it's not going anywhere. And it paled in comparison to once, what once had been. But the Lord says, but there is a day that is coming. And he says, there is a day that is coming when the glory of this house that you guys are working on will far surpass any glory from that temple that Solomon once built. The Lord's message, don't be discouraged, but be encouraged. Because you are part of something that will be even greater than the greatness of the temple that Solomon built. Now, there's a lot in those verses that I want to unpack a little bit. Look at verse 6 again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, a little while, I'll shake the heavens and the earth and the sea. Verse 7, I'll shake all the nations so that the treasures of those nations shall come in. Remember from our history, the Medes and the Persians, they defeated the Babylonians. That's why the Jews could go back to the land. A little later on, we know the Greeks defeated the Medes and the Persians. A little after that, a couple hundred years, the Romans defeated the Greeks. What God was doing indeed was he was shaking all of that nation, all those nations. And it was the last of those groups. It was the Romans with all the accumulated wealth from all of the conquered nations. It was the Romans that fulfilled the second portion of verse 7, that part there that, that speaks of the treasures of the nation coming in. The second temple of the nation of Israel, the first one was referred to as Solomon's temple, the second temple, sometimes it's also called Herod's temple. It was a much expanded and much more glorious temple than how, even how wonderful Solomon's was. 
Herod's temple was even bigger and more grand than that. Herod was a Roman. He was from a foreign nation. And he put all of his money in, really, to make a name for himself because he kind of ruled over that area. He had a little bit of Jewish blood and background in him. But really, he wanted to make this grand temple area. He's the one that leveled off the mountain. Uh, so you have the Temple Mount area that you have today, and he wanted to uh, all of these structures and side structures and just make it this wonder of the world. He wasn't doing it for God's glory. He was doing it for his own glory. That's why I often like to refer to it as the second temple and not Herod's temple, so as to not give him any you know, undue glory, as if he cares uh, these days. Here, anyhow... His temple or that temple, that glorious temple, it was considered one of the wonders of the ancient world. And it was built on the dime of foreign nations, not even on the Jewish dollar necessarily, or shekel, I guess you might say. And so that which the older inhabitants of Jerusalem were looking at and weeping over, it would one day go on to become one of the wonders of the world and it would come out of the treasury of another. To quote another prophet whom we studied recently, the Lord was about to do a work in their day that they wouldn't believe if he would have even told them. And so as I begin to wrap up our time this morning, what I want to do is I want to end with, uh, I want to draw your attention in verse 7. You see there in verse 7 again, he says, I will shake all the nations and they shall, uh, it talks about, so that the treasures of the nations shall come in. Well, there's an alternative translation, or there are a few alternative translations. Remember, when it's translated from the Hebrew into the English language, many times decisions have to be made as to you know, the meaning of the word that is being used. And so that's why if you're reading the King James Version or the New King James Version or the New American Standard or the English Standard or the NIV or any of the many other English versions that we have, that's why sometimes verses will be like, well, mine's a little different than yours because the translators have to make some choices, some decisions. And the New King James Version is an example of a decision that was made on this particular verse. And so I'm reading the, out of the ESV this morning. And there it uses the word treasures. In the New King James Version, it uses the word desire instead. And, of course, many people desire treasures. And so you can see kind of the link right there. But the New King James Version also does something interesting. Notice what it does with the word desire. It capitalizes the word desire. Desire of all nations. All those words are capitalized as if that is a title. And in the history of the Jewish people, remember the book of Haggai was written to Jewish people. In the history of the Jewish people, the way that the Jewish teachers interpreted this passage is that this verse was a reference to the Messiah. And so in Christianity, hundreds of years after the fact, they continued to follow that thinking along. And so the phrase, the desire of all nations, became a title for the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so maybe you've seen that, you know, that poster that has all the names of Jesus on it. Anybody seen that? It was really popular. And when I came to know the Lord, I bought one. I hung it in my bedroom or whatever. And one of those titles that was in there, he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father, the Rose of Sharon, the desire of all nations. That's where it comes from. 
And so if you, you know that to be the title of Christ, this is where it comes from. Because truly, whether the world knows it or not, the all nations, the Gentiles know it or not, the desire of all people everywhere through all time is to be in right relationship with God through his anointed one, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the desire of all nations. And so then the understanding then of this particular verse is not that it's just a reference to the Messiah, but the understanding is that this supposedly, apparently, less magnificent temple building that is causing so much discouragement to those that were presently constructing it, that the prophet is saying, you have no idea, one day, the desire of all nations, the Messiah himself, is going to come and walk in the courts of this building. You have no idea what you're involved with right now. See, that's a word of encouragement. He says it would be his presence that will fill the house, verse 7, that will fill the house with glory. The glory of the presence of the Messiah himself gracing its courtyards. And 400 years later, it was to this very temple that Jesus would appear on many occasions. I'm reminded of the first occasion that Jesus ever went to the temple. Humanly speaking, he probably didn't even know he was there. He was eight days old. His parents brought him in. He was going to be circumcised there. It's recorded for us in Luke chapter 1. Luke 1, begins this way. It says, Now when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they, that's Mary and Joseph, they brought him, that's Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy unto the Lord, separated unto the Lord. Special sacrifice. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. That, verse, that passage goes on. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, and he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. That's another title of the Messiah, the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And so he came in the Spirit into the temple that day. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, Simeon took Jesus up in his arms and he blessed the Lord and he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. What had happened? The desire of all nations had graced this temple with his presence. This temple that these folks back in Haggai's day were so discouraged about building he had visited. And of course, Jesus would visit this same temple on many, many occasions. Luke 19.47 tells us when, when in Jerusalem, he was teaching daily in the temple. Matthew 21.14 says that there he healed those that came into the temple, that he healed them. This verse by Haggai, or from Haggai, it was a verse designed to encourage a discouraged people. Imagine this to put it in the context of our day. Imagine if you were attempting, we were attempting to build a grand building, some great church, some wonderful, beautiful church. 
and we were discouraged because things weren't going very well and that all of our best efforts seemed to be producing nothing more than something akin to a Walmart, you know, a big box warehouse kind of place. This is going to be our church. I kind of like it. <laughs> but, but if we were going for something a little more grand, like a cathedral of sorts, we'd be discouraged. But then imagine if someone said to you, kind of prophetically said to you, you know, someday presidents are going to grace that space, that platform there, and address crowds from that platform. Well, if you believe the message of that prophet, I think that would serve the effect of putting a little bit of extra pep in your step. Because in reality here, here's the context, one far greater than any president was going to grace with his presence this house that these folks were building. And these people, they had come a long way in their walk. They've gone off track, they got distracted. But when God stirred once more in their lives, they responded that, to that stirring. And they got to work and they began to once again do the things that they had previously been doing but had gotten away from. But in that, they discovered what many of us discover when we have taken steps of obedience in response to God's leading. They discovered that progress is slow. And because it seemed they weren't happening as quickly as they would like, they became discouraged. Not only that, they fell into the habit or the trap of comparing their efforts with the efforts of those that had come before them. And they drew the conclusion that they didn't measure up. And the result, again, was that they were discouraged. As they looked back on the glory of the past, their present seemed pretty bleak. Their efforts seemed measly when compared with the accomplishments of others. But little did they know who it was that would one day grace the courts of the building that they were building. I wouldn't be surprised today if some of us that are here are a bit discouraged about where we are in our walk with the Lord. And specifically who I'm speaking to are those that maybe have responded to God's stirring about a particular thing, maybe as a result of some of the earlier studies in the book of Haggai. As we kind of drew those studies to a conclusion, there was sort of that challenge. What, God, what is God calling you to do? Do it today. Don't put it off. And maybe you did two weeks ago, three weeks ago. And yet now you're beginning to wonder, you know, I'm not seeing any change. I'm not really sure it's worth it. Why bother? And you're discouraged. Here's the word for you. Be encouraged. Because even small steps forward are steps forward. And I just think that's so incredibly important for us to remind ourselves. It's such, you're like, yeah, duh. It's just such a simple, important truth for us to hold on to that even small steps forward are steps forward. And so don't compare yourself with where you might want once might have been, stop. What's the use? The only place you should be comparing yourself is to where you were yesterday. And if you're further along from where you were yesterday, praise the Lord. And then keep moving forward so that you can ensure that tomorrow you're going to be a little further along than you are today. I think that's what God wants from us to take from this particular passage. And then significantly and finally this, don't compare yourself for your efforts to some other Christian, the missionary, the Hudson Taylors or George Mueller's or those folks there that are these great people of the faith, don't compare yourself to some other Christian or some other ministry 
or anything like that. Run your race. Run your race. And faithfully respond to what it is that God stirs you quickly and obediently. Because the word to take away, because who knows the glorious things that he desires to accomplish in the future through your efforts in the present. Amen? Amen. I hope that's an encouraging word for you. Father, we thank you for that helpful reminder. Lord, I have to imagine any one of us here that has been in the Lord for any period of time have experienced times when we really feel up and times where we're a bit down and discouraged. And Lord, I especially pray this morning for those that may find themselves in that place right now. But I pray that the, the living word would have its effect on every heart here today. And there'd be sort of this new burst of, of energy and encouragement that enters in to just keep moving forward, that you haven't abandoned us, that you're right there with us, You've put this work in our heart for a purpose. And you seek to accomplish great things. And so bless your word to our hearts in Jesus' name.